Section 17 of 11 Possible Cases by Various. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jason in Panama. 11 Possible Cases by Various. A Tragedy of High Explosives by Brainerd Gardner Smith. Chapter 1. In the course of my work last year, I had occasion to go over a file of old Liverpool newspapers, and thus came upon a remarkable paragraph in the ship news. Translated out of the language of commerce, it was to the effect that the good ship Empress, just arrived from Australia, reported that while rounding the Cape of Good Hope, she had been driven southward far out of her course by a storm, and that away down in the southern Atlantic had sighted a vessel drifting aimlessly about. The first mate boarded her, and, returning, reported that the derelict was the ship Albatross. That she had been abandoned was plain, for all the boats were gone, and so were the log and the ship's instruments. On the deck, close by the companion hatch, lay two bodies, or rather skeletons, clad in weather-rotted garments that showed them to have been man and woman. These bodies were headless, but the heads were nowhere to be found on the deserted deck. The mate found on the cabin table an open book with writing on its pages. A pen lay on the table, and a small inkstand, in which the ink had evidently long since dried. The book was evidently a journal or diary, so the mate reported, and he put it in his pocket, meaning to carry it aboard the Empress but when he was getting down into his small boat the book slipped from his pocket dropped into the water and sunk the albatross was badly waterlogged and he thought could not have floated much longer to this report the editor of the paper added a note saying that the readers would all doubtless remember that the albatross had sailed from liverpool several years before bound for australia and it was thought to have gone down with all on board as no news of her had since been received that was the substance of the remarkable paragraph. What was almost as remarkable to me, a newspaper man, was that the Liverpool paper had evidently made no effort to learn the owners of the Albatross, the name of her captain and crew, or whether or not she carried any passengers. I carefully searched files to see if there was any further reference to the case. There was none. After the manner of his kind, the editor of the paper had, so it seemed, taken it for granted that his intelligent readers would remember all the particulars that they wanted to know. I was much impressed by the paragraph. My professional instinct told me that there was a good newspaper story there, and I was disgusted that any editor could let it go untold. I also experienced more than the usual curiosity to know how those headless bodies came there, or rather, why they should lie there on the deck headless. Then there was that journal that had been found lying open on the cabin table, as though the writer had been interrupted in the writing which had never been finished. What light might that little book not throw on the mystery? And now it was lying fathoms deep in the southern Atlantic. Of what use to speculate over the matter? Thanks to the careless mate and the stupid editor, that mystery would remain forever unsolved but in spite of reason i did speculate considerably over the matter and try as i did could not banish the story from my mind a few weeks after that i went into northern vermont to report the benton murder trial which was attracting much more than local attention i was pleased to find that the prosecuting attorney was an old classmate of mine george judson 
I had known him pretty well as a hard-working and remarkably bright man, with a curious streak in his mental make-up that led him to investigate every new ism that appeared. We used to call him a spiritualist, and, had the word been in use, I am sure would have called him a crank. He was five years older than I, had married immediately after graduating, had prospered as a lawyer, and now had a good home for his wife and two children. He seemed much pleased to renew the acquaintance of college days, and insisted that I should make his house my home during my stay in the town. One Saturday evening, as we sat in his comfortable library smoking after dinner, Judson said, with some apparent hesitation, There's going to be a show here this evening that may interest you. Yes? Yes. There's a woman living here who does some remarkable things when in a trance. There are a few of us who are curious about such things, and I've asked her and them here to my house this evening. What is it? I asked lightly. The Cabinet Act? Judson looked a trifle hurt. Yes, he answered slowly. She's a medium, and you newspaper men have said that she's a fraud. But I've seen manifestations that I can't explain on any theory other than that they were the work of higher powers, and I'm going to look into it further. The same old Judson, I thought. He was evidently more in earnest than his assumed indifference indicated. I marveled that the shrewd, successful lawyer could be so easily deluded, for I was sure that he was deluded. I had attended many a seance, and had helped to expose more than one medium, and knew that the whole matter of manifestations was nothing but a more or less clumsy juggle. But I kept my thoughts to myself. Experience had taught me that when it was known that there was present at a seance a pronounced unbeliever in that phase of spiritualism, the conditions were usually unfavorable for a manifestation. So I said that I should be glad to see the show, as he called it. Then I encouraged Judson to talk, and he talked well. From mediums and cabinets and manifestations and the ways of spirits generally, our conversation drifted to the marvelous and the mysterious, and finally I told the story of the albatross and the headless skeletons. Judson was much impressed by the story. He joined me in anathematizing the careless mate of the Empress and the stupid editor of the Liverpool paper. His lifelong habit of seeking to know the unknowable, reinforced by the detective instinct that is developed in every good lawyer as well as newspaper man, made him unnaturally anxious to solve the mystery. The thought came to me just then that if spiritualism was good for anything it would be in such a case. What I said was, I have often wondered whether the peculiar power of the trance medium might not be employed in such cases. Now, is it impossible that that journal found on the albatross, and which I believe contains the solution of our mystery, should be materialized for us here? Judson jumped at the idea. Yes, yes, he said hurriedly. It shall be. It must be. How fortunate. He spoke with such earnestness and confidence that I showed my surprise in my face. I also voiced it. You talk as though the thing were already accomplished. My experience with mediums has led to me to consider them a trifle unreliable, but you seem to be sure of this one. Not of the medium, but of myself. I had better tell you now what but one other living person knows, that I have a very peculiar power. I don't attempt to explain it, but it is no less a fact. I seem to be able, by mere force of will, to control certain persons. This medium is one of them. I have never been able to produce any results unaided, but more than once 
have I thought into visible form those who had long before died. The same old story, you see. Judson was apparently an out-and-out -out spiritualist, ready to be humbugged by the first shrewd trickster that came along. He went on. Now, this evening you will see a remarkable woman. I have been able to control her in a remarkable way. I confess that I had never thought of seeking the materialization of an inanimate object, but I believe that it can be done. It shall be done. We shall have that journal this night. I was almost convinced by my friend's absolute confidence, then saddened by the thought that this usually hard-headed, keen young lawyer had such a weak spot in his brain. He was the last man you would expect to be deluded by the tricks of the medium. At the same time, I found myself, in spite of my skepticism, wondering what would come of it all. That evening I was seated in Judson's large parlor, one of about twenty persons of the sort usually seen at such seances, the spiritualists of the place, I thought. The room had been arranged after the fashion customary. There was an improvised cabinet in one corner, chairs in a semicircle in front of it, not too near. Judson seemed a sort of master of ceremonies, passing in and out, greeting newcomers, whispering a word here and there. He was pale, I thought, and seemed rather preoccupied. We waited perhaps a quarter of an hour, and then Judson ushered into the room a tall, slender woman, middle-aged, gray-haired, with rather strongly marked features and dark eyes that had a tired look. She seemed a person of nerves. A trifle above the average medium in appearance of intelligence and refinement, and with rather less of the self-assertive boldness usually displayed by the women who make a business of communing with spirits. There was no preliminary nonsense. She entered the cabinet in a business-like way. Judson turned the gas down low, so that we were in the dimmest sort of a dim religious light, just the light I have always observed, that seemed most congenial to spirits, or, rather, that aided most effectually in the tricks played by the mediums. Then he sat down by my side and said, Let us all clasp hands. I grasped with my left the fat hand of a large woman next to me, and Judson seized my right with his left hand. It was quite cold, and I thought trembled a little. He leaned over me and whispered in my ear, I am determined to see that journal to-night. If will can do it, it shall be done. Join your will with mine. You are a man of will. Let us force the powers to yield to our combined wills. I was startled by the intensity of his manner more than by the words. In spite of my half-disgust at the whole proceedings, that were such an exact repetition of more than one humbugging seance, I was forced into a respectful attitude of mind, and at once became an interested assistant, where a moment before I had been an unbelieving, critical observer. I nodded my head, and Judson's grasp of my ham became firm. Then there was complete silence for many moments. I bent all my mind to the one thought that I would see that journal wherever in the large world it might be. At first my thoughts would wander, but then it seemed to me that Judson's grasp tightened and drew the desultory thought back to the one subject of his own thoughts. I have considered this a good deal since and conclude that Judson did, for the time at least, possess some extraordinary power, possibly pure force of will. At all events I grew more and more determined to have my will done. Then there came a calm voice from behind the curtain of the cabinet. What is your wish? No one spoke for a moment. 
and then a weak voice at my left said something about a desire to see a child that had died, and another voice expressed the wish to look upon the form of a departed husband. I was too much occupied with my own thoughts to notice then that this was the same old scene enacted as at all the other seances. Again there was perfect silence, it seemed interminable. I could hear the breathing of the fat woman on my left, I could hear my watch ticking in my pocket. I thought that I could hear my heart beat, but all the time there was the firm pressure of the cold hand of my friend, and the constant thought, now shaped into words, and the words into a sentence, and that sentence continually repeating itself, until I seemed to hear that too. I will see that journal tonight. And still that strange silence. The air in the room became close. Every door and window had been carefully closed and the breathing of twenty or more persons had made large draughts on the oxygen. Suddenly a breath fanned my cheek, then a stronger draught, and then a steady current of air set against my face. I felt it move my hair, and it smelled of the sea. It was salty. Yes, undoubtedly a strong steady sea breeze was in that room, and it brought with it the smell of a ship, tar and oakum and pitch. The odor that arises when the sun beats hotly down upon the unprotected deck, and the boards shrink, and the great pine masts feel the fierce heat. But there was no heat, only at first that cool sea breeze, and then the patter of rain, seemingly on the floor of the room in which we sat. Then a low moan came from behind the curtains of the cabinet, and then the sound of a heavy fall. At this some of the women shrieked weakly. There was a general letting go of hands, and Judson sprang to the cabinet and disappeared behind its folds. After an instant of silence we heard his voice. More light. I hastened to turn on the gas. Judson pulled aside the curtains, and we saw that the woman was lying outstretched on the floor. She has fainted, said Judson calmly. That is all. I believe that she is subject to such attacks. I doubt, my friends, if we shall have any manifestations tonight. May I ask you all to consider the meeting adjourned? We will give our friend here all medical attention. He spoke so calmly and with such authority that without a word the little company passed out of the room and out of the house. Judson and I raised the woman to a couch, and he brought water and bathed her face. She opened her eyes, sighed deeply, and then sat up. There was a strange, scared look on her face. Where is it? she asked faintly. Here, said Judson, and drew from beneath his coat a small book and handed it to her. She turned away with a shudder. No, no, take it away, take it away. Judson handed it to me. Will you kindly take this book to the library? said he. I will join you in a moment. I obeyed mechanically. Before going into the library I stepped to the broad piazza and looked out into the night. The snow lay white on the ground, stars twinkled in the frosty sky. It was very cold, and I could hear the snow creak under the feet of passers-by. And yet I had felt that sea-breeze, and heard the patter of rain. What did it mean? I shivered, entered the warm house, turned the light high in the library, shut the door, and not till then looked at the book in my hand. It was a small blank book about six inches long and four inches wide well bound in leather, and thoroughly water-soaked. I opened it. The leaves were wet and discolored, and I could see that the pages were covered with writing. I turned to the fly-leaf, and there read these words. Arthur Hartley's journal, 
begun on board the ship Albatross, March 7, 1851. I stood in a daze, glaring at the written words, utterly confounded. The door opened and Judson entered hurriedly. His cheeks were now flushed, his eyes fairly blazed with light, his face was bright with a smile of triumph. I knew it, I knew it, he said loudly. What a victory, what a victory, even nature yields to the power of will. He paced back and forth rapidly, showing no desire to see the book that had come to us so strangely. Then he threw himself into a big chair, lighted a cigar, puffed at it vigorously a moment, then became quiet, looked intently at the glowing coals in the grate, and said calmly, Well, let's see what Mr. Hartley has to say for himself. Read the journal, please. I had been standing all this time by the table, with the little damp book in my hand, and watching Judson curiously. I drew up a chair, opened to the first page, and began to read. End of section 17